Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education for the scam that it is. I am Kevin Prendeville, and as always, we will be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. And today, I want to go back in time again, this time to 1968. Now, I know many of us can even remember this time period, and it was a time of great change within our country. We had the students revolting against the man, as they called it, or the authority figures at the time, about Vietnam and about a lot of the social issues that they saw through their own eyes. Now this, in its beginning, was started with good intentions, but as we all know, the path to hell is paved for these good intentions. And so today I want to talk about how this ideology and how these revolts started the division in our country today. And that is why it is part of the crime of the century. As we all have learned and we all have heard, uh, history is paralleled by many other events or even cyclical, as some would argue. And that's not what I wanted to talk about, obviously, uh, today. But there was a, another country in another time period that would be a great model for what, what we're going to see. And that would be post-World War I France. And I know I've spoken a little bit about what happened, but I have never delved into the subject and why it's so important to today and why we should probably be paying attention to it more than we are. Uh, we like to think in our modern age that everything is new and all these issues have never been dealt with before, but really they have. And even if it wasn't the right way to deal with it, um, we could definitely see what the consequences are for certain paths. So let me set the stage. Um, We'll set it in about early 1920-21. Uh, France lost the most out of any of the countries in, in World War I. <clears throat> Their farmland was heavily destroyed by German artillery, and the, many of the battlefields of the Great War in the West was fought on French farmland, not German soil, not, um, not in the cities either. So... Not only was their grain production down and their and their food production overall uh, was down and it caused them to have to borrow a lot of money and import a lot of different foods, but the amount of young people, I think it was in the three or three and a half million uh, young men that were killed in the war. Out of eight million total, France had almost 50% of the casualties. And... So what it caused back home is was this great strife where families and, and the common person felt as though or th that their family that their sons and had gone and died and though they were able to extract their revenge on the Germans, there was still a growing sense that, that the political elite didn't align with their views. And so this caused a lot of strange art phenomenons. Like there was uh, a lot of interesting uh, haircuts and different ways of wearing clothes. And, and a, lot, a lot of the uh, people who were left in the war turned, strangely enough, to art and very surreal kind of uh, art paintings. 
and expressions, but the crux of what I'm talking isn't, they weren't, you know, smoking dope like the hippies were here, but the parallel, I think, is uh, a little bit ominous because you have this war that uh, just dragged on for, for a very long time, and now the French were vested in it because it's their, their homeland and their way of life, and if, if they had lost, you know, they, that would have been very much in danger. So you can understand why they were fighting. Uh, Vietnam was a little different. You know, we still had an ocean between us and the communists, but the idea was to contain the communists, but that war, war had no end. Just like the war in Iraq today, there's no, there was no, okay, this means we've won the war, we've done our job. It was just contain the communists. And so um, there is a little bit of difference between the two wars, but the outcome was the same, where you had the surviving young people who saw what happened to, in some cases, uh, what, hap what happened to their friends if, if they did go to Vietnam and come back, um, or the ones who dodged the draft or didn't go, um, how they experienced it um, through the eyes of either their parents or if they had a brother or uh, if they saw it, especially in those days, um, on television, their reaction was similar in, in which they said that they were going against um, authority and, and it was very clear and they would protest and uh, riot obviously and we still had uh, the, the civil rights issue was still very prevalent so their reaction was a culmination of all these different um, moral wrongs that they saw in society and it was similar to what happened to the what was dubbed the lost generation in France because a lot of these people actually ended up turning over to uh, socialism, communism. And it was a big issue in France in the 30s and one of the reasons why they lost to the Nazis so quickly is half, the, half their generation didn't want to fight. And they, it was peace at all costs. There was you know, never gonna be another great war in their minds and the hard left would preach that, you know, in France, that there were going to be no more wars and, uh, you know, they're going to sing Kumbaya and not make up with the Germans, but, you know, not not defend their own country at the expense of trying to um, make everybody happy. And so you actually had this, this great division in France in the mid to late 30s between the, uh, what they would call Republicans, which are not comparable to our version of, of Republicans, but but you had the supporters of uh, democracy. So even though there is a difference between you know the American Republicans and French Republicans, and that's another podcast for another day. But the idea that that a lot of them moved towards socialism, and a small sect of them just. Like we had those biker gangs that showed up and there was a lot of uh, what happened to people with severe trauma from uh, Vietnam. They weren't, you know, they weren't going to go live in the woods because, you know, they're, they're real men and they just fought in the woods. But, but they still, they, they put on this kind of tough persona, not kind of, it's a tough persona and then that's who they were. Well, the French also had some of the, the men and even generals who 
fought in the Great War went towards um, a very interesting time in history of French fascism, and it only appeared, you know, until the Nazis showed up. In which case, uh, you didn't want to be a French fascist. Um, your own countrymen would start killing you. But uh, a lot of what happened to France. Uh, in World War II and why they surrendered so quickly started because of this division and you had a lot of people saying peace at any cost. And I, this actually was spurned on by um, a conversation that I was having with a, uh, with a gentleman. I was uh, down in Memphis for a few days and he spoke about um, how he had some friends, he's an older gentleman, and he had um, some friends who had gone to Vietnam and he was talking about a lot of his fears with uh, Trump and North Korea and him alleging that there was going to be some world war. Uh, again, another podcast for another day. But the point of it was, he was communicating to me, his philosophy was peace at any cost. And as nice as that sounds, that's just not realistic. Somebody is going to come in, somebody with a mindset that is, if you, which was Hitler's mindset, you know, if you want peace, then you're weak. Um, and the pacifists and the people who want peace at any cost are going to get run over. Um, especially if, you know, someone like, like even worse, we're seeing with the terrorists and the um, ISIS and the factions that we're fighting today where they, they pray that we all become pacifists because it makes their job easier. And so... We see a lot starting in after Vietnam um, that happened with France, where you have this sort of aversion to war at any cost. And um, a couple big shifts happen here where um, the rise of atheism and the fact that because the church was so associated with the quote-unquote man, as they would call him, or the authority figures, that that institution had to be done away with. And you had, in the end, uh, you saw a lot in the ideology, too, that uh, the typical Western morals were dealt away with. And what this turned into over time, um, I'm assuming while these people were living in the woods and eventually when they sobered up and realized they had no money and their VW bus wasn't going to last forever, they decided to go in the real world and realized that nobody could hire, they, they had no real applicable skills, but their rich mothers and fathers had university connections. And so some of these people ended up becoming professors. Um, and so they w could then transfer their ideology to their students, and this is where we're getting into why it's relevant to today, um, because now you have this idea of peace at any cost, you're going against religion, you're going against uh, Western morals, or what would be typical, you know, Western morality, and the only ideology that, in the West, that preaches that, um, and it is really only Western ideologies that are surviving or um, you know, modified to fit other cultures. So essentially what happened was the only um, appealing ideology was socialism, and that always turns into communism. Uh, Vladimir Lenin said it himself, that the goal of socialism is communism. So you have all these professors who 
don't necessarily experience the real world in terms of economics, in terms of um, working for what you have, and they've been raised by television violence in the sense that they've been raised by what they saw in the Vietnam War, um, how brutal it was, and how that was televised to them. So their idea of war and I would argue, therefore, nationalism became very warped. That if you know we were nationalistic, and that turned into war, and war turned into this horrific, um, grotesque thing, which it is, that you know led them to pacifism or uh, peace at any cost. Which then, um, if you trace that all the way back, they would argue the root is uh, nationalism and being nationalistic, and so that was their next target. And we even see that today. Um, a line that I was always taught in school that, you know, true nationalism is holding your country up to some sort of arbitrary standard. And what seemed to me that was happening was the standard was so unbelievably high that, that the country had to be, um, you know, you couldn't use any religious correlation here because, um, you know, these people are so anti-religious. but the country had to be full of people who were just so moralistic and, um, you know, never uh, were never hypocritical and never fought and never did, you know, this or that. And it became really an excuse for them to bash their own countrymen and say, well, I'm holding them to this higher standard. No, you're not. All you want to do is focus on the bad stuff. And I. I can see where people would say, you know, ultra-nationalism or, uh, you know, vehement, vehement nationalism can disregard um, some aspects that have happened in history that are bad. But to dwell on that, to go the other way and say, well, uh, you know, this happened in the past, so we'll never be right. And this, you know, we have to do all of this stuff to make up for it now is one of the symptoms of this ideology that goes all the way back to 1968 in this country. It's not new. I think it's, and I'm starting to feel as though it's common in human history where there's some great war or some big conflict that uh, takes up money and, um, you know, manpower. And there's so much death associated with it that's, that's publicized. And we have, you know, a generation that has, has this backlash against it. And their descendants, not fully realizing the consequences of that backlash, and are still are radicalized by it as they're being taught by radicals, um, it only gets worse and worse as they're removed from the actual problems. We are 40, 50 years away from Vietnam, and our country came back, and we had the Reagan years of economic growth, and we had... Uh, the tech bubble, and um, we have come a long way since then, economically, technologically-wise, socially, and all these leaps and bounds, but a lot of these professors still want to act like it's 1968. So you have the new feminism movement, you have a lot of radicalization of, of uh, people of color in a place where it's just not necessary because it's not an issue anymore. And the problem is, that's what 
when these people were hired as professors, that's what they stood on was their ideology back to 1968, which might have been relevant in 1975 or 76, but that was 40 years ago. <laughs> I, I mean, there are people now who have lived a full life since then, and the result of that, it means that the, the situations they're in are no longer applicable to their radical ideology, and yet we're still acting like it's you know the middle of the OPEC crisis. And so to fix this and why this is part of the crime of the century is that what happened to France, I mean, they were known as a shield of Europe and they were, until 1871, the political center of Europe was in Paris. And within a matter of three to five generations, depending on where you put it, that was over. So if we, as you look at the other major powers of the world, China, Russia, which are very rep repressive regimes, um, we are the really only the only superpower that still has freedom and and the ideals of a free country at our base. And if we lose that, if we become like France, where where we're too focused on issues that are no longer relevant and problems that we are no longer dealing with, but, but, but our academics haven't progressed past that. Where are those people that, that flock to our shores to get away from their repressive regimes? If we fall, where do they go? See, so it's not just ranting against uh, hippies, although I obviously, no, I'm not very fond of them, it's their descendants, and their descendants' descendants now. So I want you to think about this, and I want you to marinate on and and this is why it's part of the crime of the century, and I wish I expanded on it. Perhaps it's, it'll be in a second edition, but I think you can see where all of our problems are starting to lie. So that's what we're going to talk about in podcast number seven, another issue that is very, very prevalent to the crime of the century. I'll see you on the next podcast.